Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of the Cowboy Church of Ellis County. You know, there are a lot of things, guys, in the Bible that are very easy to understand, and I'm thankful for that. Overall, you know, I hear a lot of people say, well, I don't know. You know, the Bible's hard to understand. Overall, it really isn't. I mean, how many of you really struggle with where the Bible says, thou shalt not kill? Y'all have a problem with that? Thou shalt not steal. Anybody struggling to understand the, the deeper meaning of that? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Do you get that? How, how about the golden rule where Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you? Is that, is that hard to understand? The reality is probably 90% of Scripture is just very straightforward and simple. I mean, that, that's the reason the whole Protestant Reformation just said, listen, sola scripture, if you just have the Word of God, you can make a connection with God. But that's not to say that there's not some things in the Bible that are a little bit difficult, that are a little bit hard to understand. Indeed, there are some passages that when we read them that are just so odd to us that we have a hard time even getting through it because we have so many questions we can't get to the point that it's trying to make. And a good example of this is found in Mark chapter 11, verse 12. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. This is where Jesus cursed the fig tree. And I've had a lot of people ask about that over the years. So we're going to take a look at it. Mark is the longer version. There's another version found in Matthew. Mark chapter 11, verse 12 is where we'll be. And I'll skip around just a little bit in this because it's split into two pieces. It says, The next morning as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And he noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off, so he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. Now at this point, verse 15, Jesus and his disciples go into Jerusalem to the temple. They worship. This is where Jesus overturns the tables of the money changers and all of that happens. And and then they travel back the next day. And I want us to skip down to about verse um, verse 20. It said, The next morning as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed that it had withered from the roots up. And Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day, and he exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Then Jesus said to the disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth, you can say to this mountain, May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you have received it, it will be yours. But when you're praying, first forgive anyone you're holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Now, the truth of the matter is the lesson that Jesus was trying to teach by cursing the fig tree is not that hard to get. It is a lesson in prayer. He, according to his own testimony here, cursed the fig tree in order to to be an object lesson to the disciples. And when they walked by it the next day, Jesus said, here's the lesson I want you to get. If you believe anything when you pray for it and you have no doubt, you will receive what you have prayed for. In other words, pray in faith. 
Now, obviously, there's some caveats to that. We know that there are many other things the Bible says about prayer. For example, in 1 John chapter 5, and you don't need to turn there, but it says this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And so Jesus is not just saying anything you pray for you can have, but certainly He is just making the, the point that Whenever we pray, we need to pray fully believing that God is real, fully believing that God hears us, and fully believing that God's going to respond. That's the point of, of the story. But a lot of us read that story, and we don't even get the point of the story because we get hung up on the story itself. Because the question that is ringing in our mind as we read the story where he cursed the fig tree is what? What's the question? Why? Some of you got it. Why, why did he do that? I mean, he's walking along. There's a fig tree. It's got leaves on it. The Bible says he went over there to see if there's any figs on it. He looked. There's no figs on it. Jesus said, may you never bear fruit again. And the fig tree dies. And it seems very off-putting to us. It's very confusing. And we want to know why Jesus did that. Well, the reality is the Bible doesn't tell us why Jesus did that beyond it being an object lesson. But I do believe that there is a very reasonable and logical explanation for why he chose to uh, give the lesson the way that he did. What if Jesus simply hates those things that are fruitless? What if Jesus cursed the fig tree because he simply has a distaste and a displeasure for anything that ought to be producing fruit but does not produce fruit? See, I believe there's a good biblical case that can be built for that. Because everywhere that you look in Scripture where there is fruitfulness, you find the displeasure of God and the displeasure of Christ. For example, over in the book of Luke chapter 13, we're going to look at a few of these real quick. Luke chapter 13, verse 6. We have another fig tree episode, Luke chapter 13, verse 6, it said, Then Jesus told this story, a man planted a fig tree in his garden, and he came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it, but he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years, and there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space. And the gardener answered, Sir, give it one more chance, leave it another year, and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. If we get figs next year, fine, but if not, then you can cut it down. Now, there's several moving parts in this story. First of all, you have the gardener. And in this parable, the gardener represents God. And God is coming to see if His people which is specifically Israel, but it can apply to his people all throughout the age. He, he's looking to see if his people are producing any fruit. And there's no fruit. And, and so God says, these people are not producing any fruit. Cut them down. Now, all the commentators I read seem to believe that the gardener, or, or the, the, the one that's actively tending the garden, not the garden owner, we, they, they all tend to believe that this is Jesus saying, well, listen, let's be patient here. Let's be gracious. Let's be merciful. Let's give them every opportunity to produce fruit. And, and if no fruit is produced next year, then let's cut it down. 
But the point that you need to hear is that God the Father and Jesus the Son, if, if the commentators are right about what they write here, they are both in agreement that if the truth remains fruitless, it should be judged. It should be cut down. So there's no fundamental disagreement there. And then we have a parable that I think almost all of you will be familiar with, so we're not going to look at it. It's found in Mark 4, though, if you want to look at it in your connect groups or whatever. And this is where the farmer goes out to sow seed, parable of the sower. Probably every one of us, if you've been in church any length of time, you've heard this. So the farmer goes out to scatter some seed. And some of it falls along ground that's packed down, hard ground. And what happens? The birds come and they eat the seed. And so it produces no fruit. The second batch of seed that he scatters as he's going along, it falls on rocky or shallow soil. doesn't mean that there's rocks everywhere. It means it's like my place. You can go about that deep anywhere you want to dig and you'll hit solid rock. But we got about that much really good dirt. And he said when the seed fell on that kind of soil, it sprang up quickly. And it does. I can vouch for that. But just as quickly... Whenever the sun comes up and the rain goes away, everything dies. And so he said, very quickly this, this, this grew, but just as quickly when persecution and trial and trouble came, it didn't produce any fruit. And then there was the third soil, which had weeds growing everywhere. And when the seed fell among the weeds, the plants grew up, but there were so many weeds that it choked the plants, making them unfruitful. And then there was a fourth kind. He said, but the fourth batch of seed fell on good soil, and it produced a crop, 30, 60, or 100 times what was sold. What's the point of a story? Which, which soil was blessed by the Father. It was the soil that produced the crop, the soil that produced the fruit. Everywhere you look in Scripture, you see God blessing that which produces fruit, and you see Him cursing that which does not. Let's look at one more, this time in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, and we'll spend a little time with this one. This is the parable of the talents. Talents not in terms of gifts and abilities, but talents in terms of, of money as it was counted and understood then. Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 14. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and he entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five, five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. The servant who had received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip, and he called them to give account of how they had used the money. And the servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. And the master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. 
And the servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest. I've earned two more. And the master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. But then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. And I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. If you knew that I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. And then he ordered, Take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, here you have a, a, a man. He's a wealthy man, and he's given each of his servants a certain amount of money to invest while he's gone. Now, there's some things that we want to notice here about the master. First of all, the master's not a micromanager. In other words, he doesn't tell them exactly what to do with the money, where to put it, how to put it there. He just simply says, according to their gifts and abilities, he says, listen, I'm entrusting this property to you. I, I, I'm trusting your good judgment on what to do with it. You just put this to work for me. And so each one of his servants went out and, and began to put the money to work except for the last. And the last, it says, didn't gain anything. Instead, he was afraid and he went out and he hid the master's money in the ground. And as a result, the master said what? He said, you're not going to enter in because you have not been fruitful with what I entrusted you with. And so what we're seeing right here is, is the idea that whenever we receive God's grace, whatever form we receive it in, and by the way, God's grace comes to us in many ways. God's grace comes to us in His patience when we do not know Him and we're out there living in the world, and yet He, he uh, as my mom used to say, protects drunks and idiots, and somehow He lets us get through that season of our life until the Word of God can come to us. That's grace. When the Word of God does come to us, that's grace. Whenever God gives us spiritual gifts as a result of coming to know Him and He fills us with His Spirit, that's grace. Whenever we are born and we are born with good healthy bodies and good healthy minds and, and certain skills and gifts and abilities, that's grace. But however grace comes into your life, basically what God is saying here, he, we're, we're being given a trust. And he wants us to take that that he has entrusted us with, and he wants us to produce fruit for his kingdom. When God calls us to himself, guys, he's not giving us something that he wants hidden in our hearts or buried in the ground. He expects that if he pours out his grace on us, he will produce, we will produce, something of value for the kingdom. And the implication here is that if we don't produce something for the kingdom then God's not going to be pleased with us. As a matter of fact, it goes further than that. If we don't produce anything for the kingdom, the implication here in this parable is 
we will be thrown into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And almost everyone agrees that that is a reference to hell. That means if we're not producing fruit for God, if we're not taking what He is entrusted with and putting it to work in His kingdom, then there is a real chance that we will not enter the kingdom at all. And I've got to tell you something, that doesn't sit well with our current understanding of God and the current day in which we live. We truly live in a time of easy grace, easy believism, that basically says, as long as you have some kind of generic belief in God, no matter how vague, you just kind of believe in God, and you say a little prayer, and you say that, Lord, I love you, and I want Jesus as my Savior, then, then you're good with God, and you just kind of go out and live your life, and you don't have to worry about anything, because God has got it from there. I've got to tell you something, Paul clearly did not believe that. Paul believed as he looked over the scripture and heard the teachings of Christ that it was necessary that as Christians that we be productive for the kingdom. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 19. Here we have a passage where you can really gain some insight into the apostle Paul and how he understood the Christian life, and how it needed to be lived. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 19. He is very much here describing what he believes God has called him to do and how he goes about doing it. Verse 19. Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. That's the, that's the defining sentence. He says, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. And even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I'm with those who are weak. I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So what run to win? All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I think other versions say I'm not just beating the air. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. So here's a picture of Paul's life. And what Paul is telling us here is he says, I do everything I can every single day in every single context to be fruitful for God. He said, when I'm with the Jews, even though I'm no longer under Jewish law, I live as though I were. In other words, I follow the law, and I talk to the Jews about the law, and we have discussions about what the Jewish scriptures say because I want to point to them 
and say, these are the scriptures that speak of Christ, you should believe in him. He says, when I'm with the Gentiles who don't believe in all of the law, I speak to them about the freedom of Christ. And I talk to them about how the free grace of God is available to them and how God is using me to speak to the Gentiles. And I try to reach them for Christ. He said, when I'm with people who are weak and vulnerable, I talk about my own problems and my own difficulties and my own brokenness. And I say, I'm just like you, but Christ has brought me all through this and he'll bring you through it too. He said, it doesn't matter what's going on in my life. I take every opportunity in every context I can to produce some fruit for Christ. Why? He says, because I'm afraid that if I don't live intentionally for God, that I myself might get to the end of the race and find that I have been disqualified because I have not lived my life in the way that God wanted me to live. In other words, what Paul is telling us here is he is not living accidentally. Guys, if there's one thing that we're struggling with in the Christian world right now, it's too many Christians are living accidentally. You remember last week we talked about Ephesians chapter 4. And and in that passage of scriptures, Paul said, With the Lord's authority, I say this, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. You must no longer live, Paul said, as, though, as people who do not have God. Your life should be different. Well, what, what difference was there really? Well, one of the things we talked about last week, we said, well, Gentile people, they don't have any purpose. There's no intentionality in their life. They don't have any direction about how they're living. In fact, I compared them to cows. That's probably not a very good thing to do. But if you remember last week, I said, you know what? In the morning, my cows get up, and they go out, and they start doing cow things. They eat grass. They walk around the pasture. They don't know why. That's just what cows do. And people, every morning, our alarm clock goes off, and we jump out of bed, and we start doing people things, and we go to work, and we start all of our activity, but many times we have no idea why or where it's going. We have no philosophy of life. We have no deeper meaning. We don't see anything beyond the immediate task. Paul said, you must no longer live that way. You are to have purpose in your life. You are to be intentional. Paul told them how that they were to live as Christians. And now he's giving them an example of how he himself lives. He lived the opposite of an accidental life. Paul lived a very intentional life. And you can see this very much portrayed in Philippians chapter 1. If you'll turn there. There are so, so many passages that I could have looked at for this. But Philippians is kind of where the Lord stirred my heart this week. And so that's where we'll look. Philippians is very similar to the book of Ephesians. Paul wrote both of these letters from prison. He he was in a bad context in in both of these letters. And and this time he's writing to a church who, who more than any other church that he started, and Paul has started churches everywhere. But this church, more than any other one, has loved him. They have prayed for him. They have supported him. They have sent people to help him. They have sent material resources again and again and again. And Paul knows that this church loves him. He knows that this church has his back. 
And, and so now he's sitting in prison and he doesn't know if he'll ever see them again, but he wants to share with them what God has put on his heart for them. And so if you'll begin reading with me, we're going to pick up at verse 3 as he writes to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1 verse 3. He says, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I, I make my request for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the first time you heard it until now. And I'm certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue His work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and I long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. Now, in this next section, Paul is going to talk to them about what's going on in his life, what's going on in prison, and how the gospel is being spread among even the prison guards and whatnot. But I want to skip through that just in the interest of time. And bring you to the close of this section in verse 27. After telling them what's going on in Paul's life, Paul writes this. He says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you're going to be saved, even by God Himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for Him. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I'm still in the middle of it. That is a precious letter. I mean, Paul himself is having struggles. He, he, he's not only in prison, but there are people who are preaching the gospel out of false motives, which are bringing trouble to him. He writes about all of this in this letter. But the main thing that he wants the Philippians to know, and please understand, he doesn't know if he's going to see them again. He doesn't know if he's even going to get to write them again. And the main thing that he wants them to know is he wants them to know how to live productively for Christ. How should you live in this time in which we are in? And I think the key to understanding what Paul had to say to him is way back up in verse 9. Let's look at it again. It's in his prayer. He said, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. Two things that he prays for. Writing to this church that has meant so much to him. Writing to these people who have always stood with him. Writing to people he may never see again. He said, there's two things I want for you. This is my prayer. 
First is that your love that you have shown me, that it will continue to overflow more and more. He already knows they love God. He knows they love the gospel. He knows that they love Him. And now He is just praying that this steadfast love will continue growing. Then He prays that they will keep on growing in their knowledge and understanding. Why? He says, I pray that you'll keep growing in your knowledge and understanding so that you may understand what really matters. There are a lot of people going through life and they don't understand what really matters. They have no idea that we are living in a broken world and that there is a spiritual battle going on. They have no idea that every day is a certain amount of tug of war. They have no idea that, that even as they go about living their daily lives that they are either being a testimony for the Lord or they are being a testimony against the Lord. But Paul said, listen. He said, if you grow in your knowledge and understanding, these things will continue to produce fruit in your heart and you will live, I think as he puts it in verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 11, and you will live always filled with the fruit of your salvation and the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ and this will bring much glory and praise to God. In other words, what he was saying to the Philippians is, I want you to live on purpose. I want you to live intentionally. He said, I don't live like a man beating the air, and I don't want you to live that way either. And so we, we have two ingredients here for producing fruit. First of all is the knowledge. He wants us to have a head full of knowledge and a heart full of love. Where does the head knowledge come from? The head knowledge comes from the Word of God. The head knowledge comes from sitting in, in services like this and being fed and growing in our understanding of what the Scripture says. He said, that's, that's the first thing. I want you to have a head full of knowledge, but I want you to have a heart full of love. Where does the love come from? The Holy Spirit is what inflames our love as we begin to hear more truth about God then we have more love in our heart for God. And as we have more love for God, we also have more love for God's people. And so knowledge represents the truth of the gospel and the heart represents the Holy Spirit and the love that He brings into our life. I'm going to tell you something. Without those two things, you're not ever going to produce anything for God. If you don't have some basic knowledge of God's Word, if you don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if you have never had the Holy Spirit come into your life in such a way that that gospel has come alive to you and it means something to you, you will never produce a bit of fruit. By the way, whenever I say a head full of knowledge and a heart full of love, does that make you think of anything? Oh, some of you, some of you are slow, but some of you are getting it. Yeah, head to heart, heart to hands, hands to feet. See, this is not accidental stuff. There's a progression here. Just like what Paul was saying, well, there are certain things we want you to get up here in your mind, but we don't want them to stay there. We want them to be brought into your heart by the Holy Spirit. We want the Holy Spirit to cause you to join with others in the kingdom, and we want you living intentionally, serving Him. Producing fruit for Him. That is the goal of everything that we've been doing for the last couple of years. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Based on what Paul wrote to the Philippians. Do you have a head full of knowledge? Do you have a heart full of love? 
In fact, let me ask the questions a different way. What do you know? What do you know? If you were to go home for the holidays here in a month or so, we're almost there, aren't we? It's almost Thanksgiving time. And you're going to go home to be with your family. And, and someone in your family said, listen, I've got all of these things going on in my life. I don't know what to do. Can you tell me what God has done in your life? Could you share the gospel with them? Do you know it well enough to be able to do that? What about your heart? Who do you love? Who are you praying for? Who are you investing your life in? Do you have anyone in your sights that you want to make a difference in their life with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Might even ask it this way. Do you have a kingdom project in your life right now? We don't talk about that much anymore, but the old time preachers used to say every Christian ought to have a kingdom project. Every one of us ought to have somebody that we love, that the Holy Spirit has led us to, and we're trying to get the gospel planted into their life. And I think that that ought to define who we are as Christian men and women. Now, I understand that there are a lot of people who would respond like this and say, you know what, I don't want to be somebody's project. And, and, and I get that. I think there can be a negative aspect to making somebody our project if we're not doing it in the right heart and in the right spirit. I read a letter from a lady who had a handicapped child. And there's been a trend in the broader culture for the last few years that in some of these high schools you'll have some of the very popular boys and girls that will ask some of the special needs kids from the school to go out with them for their prom date. All right? And this mom was writing this letter and she said, you know, that's happened to my son. And he felt like a project. Because this girl that asked him to the prom didn't have anything to do with him before the prom. And after the prom was over, she's not having anything to do with him. So this was kind of like her, see how special I am? I'm reaching out to the, I'm reaching out to the, to the uh, troubled kids or to the handicapped kids. And she said, it's no good. It feels like a project. So we don't ever want to make anybody feel that way. But I've got to tell you something, guys. I've been a project before. When Donna and I first got married and we had to go to the pastor for, for premarital counseling, I'm pretty sure that he knew within a minute and a half that I was lost as a goose in a snowstorm. Probably didn't take that long. And I'm pretty sure that he said to himself, man, this guy, you know, if this marriage is going to work, I need to move this guy. I, be, I became his project, you see. And because I was his project, he, he tried to plant that Word of God in my life. And, and it was helpful. It moved me in the right direction. When I first got into the ministry, I've testified about this guy so many times, but he was so special to me. My first little associate pastor, a little retired man, about this big around and about this tall. But he spent the last two years of his life before he died of cancer pouring his self and his knowledge and all he had learned into me so that I in turn could pour myself into the lives of others. It's not all bad being a project if we're doing it in the right heart and the right spirit. Guys, Paul had a lot of projects. He had a lot of churches that he was writing to. He had a lot of individual people that he was mentoring and loving and, and uh, encouraging and trying to help them understand how to live for Christ. I think that's what we're missing. 
I think the reason the world is like it is is because there are so many Christians in the church that don't even know we're supposed to be carrying the gospel outside of the four walls of the church. There are so many people who are lost out there because the people who are saved don't even know that we're supposed to be reaching out to the lost and producing fruit among them. But in fact, guys, that lies at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. Writing in the Gospel of John chapter 15, Jesus said this, You didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit. It is God's will that you and I as Christians be salt and light to the people around us. It is God's will that you and I as Christians be gospel seed, that we are sowing gospel seed as we go about our our business each and every day. Now, one more thing I'm going to add to all of this, and I'm going to wind it down. I don't want you to hear from me today that we go out and produce fruit, and that's the reason that we go to heaven. I don't want you to hear a works theology. I don't want you to believe that you've just got to work and work and work and strive and that's what gets you to heaven. It is absolutely not what Paul believed and it's not what I'm trying to teach. But but let me try to explain it like this. All of us live in a community. Some of us live in the Waxahachie community. Some in the Midlothian community. Some live in Mertans. Wherever that is. Some people live there. But we, many of us have, have lived in the community, many of us do live in the community, and, and, and if you've especially been in a smaller town community, it's very, very apparent, but it's true in all communities, there's always some people that try to make the community better, aren't there? I mean, you've got those individuals in a community that they're going to volunteer, they're going to be on the PTA, they're going to travel with the kids when they go on their band trips and their football trips, they're going to help the ag, ag kids with their projects, they're going to coach the Little League, they're, they're involved in their community in all kinds of ways. Why? Why? It's because they love their community. And they want their community to be the very best community it can possibly be. And so they invest their lives in that community because they love it. But then there are always people in these communities as well that live behind the closed door. And you don't see them except when they back the car out to go to work. And whenever they come back in at night, you never hear from them. And they don't really want to hear from you. They don't really care too much about the community except for their tax rate. They're kind of concerned about that, perhaps. They don't have a lot of care or concern about the community because their heart's not really in it. So them, you see, the community's just a place. It's nothing more than that. It's just a place. Well, in the kingdom of God, there are those who really care about the kingdom. There are those who see what God is doing. There are those who have caught the vision. There are those that want to invest their lives in such a way that the community expands and that it is strengthened. And then there are those whose hearts just aren't in it. And they don't want to serve the community. And that's the reason whenever the Lord looked at that last man in the parable of the talents who went out and dug a hole and put the money in the ground, that's the reason he was condemned and he wasn't allowed into the kingdom because his heart was never in the kingdom to begin with. He didn't get it, he didn't love the master, and he didn't love the kingdom. The truth of the matter is nothing reveals how we really feel more than our actions do. 
where we choose to invest our time, where we choose to invest our money, where we choose to invest our lives. And I think one of the things that we need to come to grips with is that if we are not investing in the kingdom, it's showing us something about our heart. And we need to understand that when Jesus cursed that fig tree, he was cursing that fig tree because of its fruitlessness. And we need to acknowledge that anywhere in the Bible where it talks about fruitlessness, it is always condemned. God is calling us. Jesus said, I called you and I appointed you to produce fruit that will last. He's calling us, brothers and sisters, to make a difference in this dark world. He's calling us to see the light, to love the light, to reflect the light, and to make a difference for God. I pray that if you're not doing that, you'll see it. If you're not doing that, you're living accidentally. You're not living intentionally, you're living accidentally. Paul says, I do not live without purpose. I don't, be, I don't live like a man beating the air. I get up every day determined to make a difference for the Lord. I pray, brothers and sisters, that God will bring you and I to that exact same mindset. Because if He can do that... It can make a real difference where we live. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I come to you today in Jesus' name. And I praise you and I thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your spirit and your power. Lord God, we are living in dark days. It's not only dark outside the church, Heavenly Father. In many cases, it's dark inside the church. And while there's much teaching going on, there is so little teaching going on about you and so little teaching going on about your kingdom and about the difference that we can make in that kingdom and about being salt and light and about living intentionally. Father God, this was unheard of in previous generations. Lord, I can remember looking through old libraries and, and seeing books on mission activity and people who had a passion for sharing Christ and all of that is turned into self-help books. Father God, please change our mindset. Please change our hearts. Give us a kingdom vision. Give us a love for the Master. Give us a desire, Heavenly Father, to make a difference in the community and in the workplaces and in the families where you've planted us. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. For this sermon and many more, check out our website at www.cowboyfaith.org.